following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Now, we are today in the book of Judges, carrying on the series that uh, we're working through the book of Judges, or as we, as we call it the first week, the book of Deliverers, sometimes it gets called that, uh, because the book is about uh, these, these significant people that God raised up to deliver Israel during a very dark period uh, in its national life. We've spent the last two weeks looking at Gideon's life. Uh, and, and the significant ways that God has used him. And today we are finishing off Gideon's story in Judges chapter 8. So if you've got a Bible, we'll read Judges chapter 8. We're going to read it this morning. Well, I'm going to read it with a little bit of help from the Brick Testament. I don't know whether anyone's heard of the Brick Testament, but if you, uh, if you follow along on screen, you'll see what I mean. So Judges chapter 8. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. But he answered them, What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this their resentment against him subsided. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Sukkoth, Give my troops some bread. They are worn out, and I'm still pursuing Zabah and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Sukkoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zabah and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, Just for that, when the Lord has given Zabah and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there he went up to Peniel and made the same request of them. But they answered as the men of Sukkoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, When I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Now Zabah and Zalmunna were in Kakor with a force of about 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Jobah and Jogbehar and attacked the unsuspecting army. Zabah and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Herez. He caught a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him. And the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Sukkoth, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Sukkoth, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. Then he asked Zeba and Zalmunna, What kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, Those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. 
As surely as the Lord lived, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zeba and Zalmunna said, come do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camel's necks. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each of them threw a ring from his plunder into it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace 40 years. Jerubbaal, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bare him a son, who he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal-berith as their god and did not remember the Lord their god who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. A few weeks ago I caught up with a guy who used to come to shore. Uh, He became a Christian in another church before coming to shore, and he got really involved in that church. He got really involved in an evangelistic ministry, sharing his faith with people on the university campus at Auckland. And then he left that church, came to shore, and he was involved here with us for a while, and then he kind of drifted away. And he went through some really uh, major personal difficulties over the few years after he left shore. And I caught up with him after a period of time, and I was really disappointed to find out that he had basically thrown away his faith. It was agonizing to listen to. He was a very, very nice guy, very pleasant guy, but he was basically become an atheist. And he talked about how he just couldn't bring himself to believe in God anymore, just couldn't bring himself to believe the Christian faith and didn't feel like it had any real value for him. And at the same time, he was pouring his heart out to me about this mental and emotional anguish that he was going through in his life. It was a heartbreaking thing to hear because the one person who could truly help him with what he was going through was the one person that he was pushing away. It was Jesus. But he'd made his mind up, he was an atheist, and we had a very pleasant conversation, but he had wandered a long, long way from the God that he used to serve. And I imagine that many of you could tell stories like that, that sadly it's all too common that you could tell stories of people that you know, friends or family or other people in the church who started strong in their faith, but for whatever reason, they got onto a downhill run 
And for whatever reason, they started to drift away from God. It seems so common that people start strong and then something happens. It, it could be a crisis in their life or it could just be inertia. It could be gradual spiritual drift away from God. Something happens and they just start to decline spiritually. Sometimes people in that situation stay nominally Christian. You know, it's sort of still an affiliation there. They've still got some semblance of faith. Other times, they just walk away from it and they become hostile and angry and antagonistic and you might know some of those people too. Seems like a lot of, lot of Christians know how to start well and not very many know how to finish well. And that's the pattern that you see with Gideon. That's his story. We've worked through these first two chapters of his life and we've seen a guy that has gone from strength to strength spiritually. He's answered God's call He's led the Israelites into battle with Midian under God's direction. He's torn down the idols and the altars in his dad's own backyard. He has been a model of humble faith and service to God. And then you get to this chapter, chapter 8, and it's like a totally different Gideon emerges. Gone is the humble servant who trusts God. And now you see this picture of a man who's more like an angry warlord, a tyrant, a bully who treats other people cruelly. And by the end of the chapter, he's basically led the whole nation of Israel into apostasy, into rebellion. There's barely any mention in this chapter of God. If you compare this to the earlier chapters of Gideon's life, there's hardly any mention, hardly any reference to God. Gideon mentions God a couple of times in passing, but there's no sense here of God leading him. There's no sense anymore of God guiding him. Or directing him. Gideon's on his own. And he's just driven by selfish ambition now. And his own ego. And his own thirst for power. Now the good news is this can be quite insightful for us. Because what you can see through this chapter are all these hints of what causes Gideon to spiritually decline. Things that influence him subtly to fall away from God. And these things can, if we let them make us a little bit more attentive to these patterns in our own life because these things operate so subtly, they operate generally below the radar of our own conscious awareness. And by looking at Gideon's latter life, we can start to detect the signs and signals in our lives that we may be in danger of going downhill spiritually and drifting away from God or the signs that it's already happening. So there's three things that contribute, three primary things, that contribute to Gideon's spiritual decline or demise in this passage. The first you see in verse 19. You look at this interaction that he has with the kings of Midian. He finally rounds these guys up after pursuing their army for a long time with his 300 men. He finally rounds up the kings of Midian and he has this interaction with them and he says, who were the guys that you killed at Tabor? Some battle that we hadn't heard about before, but it's happened sometime in the past. And it turns out that these two kings had murdered Gideon's brothers. It's the first time we learn about this. Sometime in the past, there's been a battle, and these guys have killed Gideon's brothers. And Gideon takes their life in vengeance for the death of his brothers. And at this moment, we realize what's really driving Gideon here. This is not God's will that's driving him anymore. It's not God's agenda. This is a personal vendetta now. That Gideon's mission at this point is to avenge the murder of his brothers. That's what he's obsessed with. That's what he is consumed by. And that puts a few other things in perspective in the chapter. It starts to explain why he acts so brutally towards his fellow Israelites when he comes to these two towns, Sukkoth and Peniel. And he's in pursuit of the Midianites. And he says to the elders of the town, please give my men some bread. These guys are starving. And the people in this town say, we're not going to do that. 
which is kind of understandable because if they'd given him food and then Gideon hadn't been successful, the Midianites would have sought some pretty major vengeance on these towns that had aided Gideon, right? So they don't help him. Gideon goes on anyway and captures these two kings, but when he comes back, he punishes these guys brutally. Remember, these are Israelite towns. These are his fellow countrymen, but he comes back and he, the, in one town, he whips the elders of the town with these desert thorns and briars, punishing them. And in the other town of Penile, he tears down a tower, which was their only fortress, and kills the men of the town. It's horrific stuff. This is a huge overreaction to anything that they've done against him. But you see, he's driven by revenge. He is driven by this vendetta, by this personal agenda that's got a hold on his life and he's going to stop at nothing to avenge the murders of his brothers. What has happened is that Gideon's now being driven far more by his own personal agenda than he is by any sense of God's agenda in his life. And this is so easy for us to do. It's so, such an easy trap for us to fall into because we've all got our own personal agendas, right? We've all, got, we've all got our own missions, we've got a cause, we've got an endeavor, we've got something we're passionate about. And those agendas can so easily get into the driver's seat and start to push us along, start to overwhelm our faith in God and become the driving force in our lives. I remember many years ago when I was just starting to learn to preach, and I went and preached in this little, tiny little church over in another part of the city, and I turned up at this church, there was an elderly guy on the door, and he shook my hand and he gave me a gift, gave me a present, all wrapped up. And he said, I give this present to every speaker that comes and speaks in our church, just as a token of our appreciation. So that was very nice. I took the present, put it under my chair, and I proceeded to go and preach in the church. Had a great morning with them. I got home and unwrapped the present. And it was a book. It was a book that that guy had written himself and published himself. And it was a book on why Christians should only use the 1611 King James Version of the Bible. And I just preached from the NIV. So I had not earned any points with that guy. And it was just full of arguments as to why every other version of the Bible is corrupt and shouldn't be used, and the one authorized King James Version is the only version Christians should ever use. At the back of this book, it had his personal testimony in it. But this wasn't even a testimony of how he got converted to Christ. It was a testimony of how he got converted to the King James Bible. Well, I used to use many versions, and then the Lord showed me that this was the one true. And this, you could just tell this defined him. This was his entire identity. Now, I don't doubt the sincerity of his faith at all. But this had become for him a real personal agenda. And the fact that he stood at that door giving that book to every single guest speaker that came, you just see what a driving force this obviously was in his life. We've all got some kind of agenda. And, and, and they're not necessarily bad things. I don't mean to use the word agenda in, in a pejorative sense. It's just any cause that you have. Could be a good cause. You might be involved in some humanitarian cause, working for an organization that helps people in need. Your cause might be the cause of justice, to, to, to vindicate someone you know, to, to work for someone through the law court system, whatever it is. It could be a political agenda that you have, lobbying for an issue, lobbying for a particular party or a political movement or whatever it is, these things are okay, but the problem comes when our personal agenda becomes the frame of reference through which we then see everything else. So what happens is, like if your agenda is a political issue, that political issue becomes a lens, and you see everything else through the lens of your politics, including your faith, including Jesus, so Christianity becomes for you a way of furthering your political cause. 
your involvement in church becomes a way of co-opting other people into your political cause. Even your reading of scripture, and I've seen this many times, becomes so tainted and filtered through your own personal agenda. So the Bible just ends up saying exactly what you want to further your own personal agenda, right? I mean, we can find anything we want to in Scripture, can't we? At the end of the day, you know, if you've got a particular cause or agenda that's burning in your heart, you can make the Bible say what you want it to say. It's like the old saying, wonderful things in the Bible I see, some of them put there by you and by me. That's true, right? We look for what we want to see, and we often just put our own stuff back in there, and we just read it back off the page. We've got to be so careful with this. You can end up even seeing Jesus through the lens of your agenda. He just looks like he holds your politics. He looks like he believes in everything that you believe, and he's got exactly the same interests and temperament and whatever else you have. We've got to recognize at least the power of our agenda to, dr to drive us and to consume us. I'm not saying give up your agendas. I'm just saying lay them down at the cross. I'm saying bring those things to God because all this stuff that we're talking about is so subtle. We don't really think this is happening, but when you let your personal agenda get into a central place in your heart, it becomes the driver rather than your identity in Jesus, and it can in fact lead to your spiritual decline. Even when the agenda is spiritual, even when the agenda is a Christian cause or a Christian issue, the irony is it can still corrode your heart when that agenda is driving you rather than the person of Jesus Christ. So name that agenda to God. And maybe there's a case for reprioritizing it in your life. Just easing back a little bit on how much attention and how much focus and how much passion you're putting into that thing if it's beginning to swamp your faith, if it's beginning to compromise you at a heart level. Okay, second issue that Gideon struggles with. Second thing that starts to compromise and eat away at his faith. After he kills these two Midianite kings, then all the Israelites come to him and say, Gideon, we want you to rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, because you've saved us from the hand of Midian. And here's what Gideon says in verse 23. I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now that sounds very humble, doesn't it? Sounds like he's saying just the right thing here. The problem is that is flatly contradicted by everything he then does. He then asks all the Israelites to give him a gold earring. And the weight of the earrings, gold, comes to 20 kgs. This is starting to look like a royal treasury of gold. Then he takes all of the king's royal ornaments, their ornaments, their pendants, even the purple robes signifying royalty, takes all of that for himself. So he said he doesn't want to be king, but now he's acting like a king. Then he takes a huge harem of wives, exactly the same thing that a king would do. The impression you get of Gideon is that he wants the power of kingship. He just doesn't want the office. He wants all the authority of being a king. He just doesn't want to have to worry about the responsibility of having to be the leader of a nation. He's power hungry. And you contrast this with where he started. Humble Gideon. You know, meek and, and timid before God, needing to be convinced to go into battle. And you just see the story of a man who has really been consumed by pride and really just become full of his own self-importance. He's, he's won a battle He's got some accolades, he's got a lot of attention, he's been asked to be king, and it's gone to his head. And that, that's how he finishes life, as a man consumed by pride. You know, I think pride is perhaps the most deadly sin that Christians face, because it is so incredibly subtle. You know, if I, I won't do this, but if I asked for a show of hands, those of you that honestly believe you struggle with pride, I don't think there'd be many. 
Because it's the one sin nobody struggles with. Not that nobody actually struggles with it, but we just don't think we do. But if I asked you to name other people who struggle with pride, you'd probably be able to say four or five people in the room, right? Because we're quite good at identifying it in other people, just not in ourselves. And honestly, that's the way Satan likes it, right? Because if he can puff up your ego a bit, if he can give you an inflated sense of your own self-importance, and if he can do all of that below the radar of you being consciously aware of it, he has won a huge victory. And he has led to massive spiritual deterioration in your life. Because as we talked about last week, pride diminishes the glory of God by grabbing glory for ourselves. C.S. Lewis has, I think, about the best way that we can try and detect pride in our lives. He says, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It's very insightful. Because what he's saying is that people who are prideful are exceptionally good at identifying pride in other people. Because it jars with their own pride. right? So when you see someone else who is seen to be better at that thing you're really good at than you, it really it causes some friction, right? Come on, doesn't it? Come on, don't pre- let's not pretend like we don't experience. I experienced this. A couple of years ago, some, um, a bunch of preachers in New Zealand were interviewed as part of a preaching series course that was put out across the country for emerging preachers in New Zealand. I know several of the preachers that were interviewed as part of this, and they didn't ask me. And I'll tell you, I was a little bit bitter. I'm, I'm serious. My, I felt it in my heart. I was a bit resentful. I was a bit bitter because I didn't get asked. And man, that, that, that brought home to me some ugliness in my soul, if I'm honest with you. Because I saw it. There it was right there, pride. It hurt me, or it, it jarred with me, when other people were seen to be better, or more qualified, or more accomplished. And that's just pride. I'm just glad I saw it. And I, I wrestle away with it, and I deal with it just like you do. You know, we all struggle with it, don't we? When someone else... You don't have to be a raving extrovert to be prideful, by the way. It's just not being seen in the way that other person is seen to be good at the thing that you're really good at. And it's not easy. But the best thing that you can do with pride is just bring it out into the light. When you see it, name it. I honestly believe that getting to the point where you can say to God... God, I see pride in my life. I think you're three quarters of the way there because I just don't think many people get to that place where they honestly acknowledge it. Denial is just so massive when it comes to pride. Being able to say, God, I see the presence of pride in my life, that is just huge. Just to name it, bring it out into the light and begin a conversation with God about how it's affecting your heart and about how you can be humbled again before him, acknowledging who he is, acknowledging who you are. Just have that conversation with God. Bring it out. Talk to him about it. Don't just assume it's not there. Don't justify it. Don't rationalize it. It's a real issue for us. Okay, final issue that Gideon uh, experienced that led to his spiritual decline. After he's taken all of this gold, after he's basically acted like a king even without wanting to be a king, he then takes the gold, melts it down, and creates this huge idol. He creates it in the shape of an ephod, which is a piece of clothing worn by the priests. So straight away, it's an object of worship. It's connected to worship. And he puts it in his hometown of Joash, and all Israel comes and worships this idol. 
And the chapter ends with Israel just drifting so far away from God by worshipping the idol. Now, some people argue that Gideon didn't really intend for the idol to be an object of worship. Maybe he was just putting a monument to God and wanting it to be a sign of God's goodness. If that, even if that's true, it's, it's thoroughly misguided. Back in chapter 6, what God asked him to do was to tear down his father's altars and set up a proper altar to God, tear down his father's idols, set up a proper altar. He hasn't done that now. What he's done is replaced that with this gold ephod. And at worst, Gideon is just leading the entire nation of Israel into apostasy, into idolatry. We've talked about how the book of Judges, the whole book is the story of Israel's Canaanization, its gradual influence by the gods and nations around Israel that come to contaminate Israel's faith. What you see in chapter 8 is the Canaanization of Gideon. It's, it's, it's a close-up picture of what is happening to the whole nation. They're drifting away and they are ending up far, far, far from God. Gideon is thoroughly Canaanized. At the end of the story, he even takes a Canaanite wife or a Canaanite concubine, foreign woman who God has expressly forbidden his people to marry. He's just been thoroughly consumed by the culture and the world around him. This whole issue is what the Bible calls idolatry, and it's easy for us to assume that it's not an issue for us because Israel were bowing down before these big statues, and that's just not something we do anymore, unless you're strange to bow down before a statue. But we don't really struggle with that, therefore we don't struggle with idolatry. That's a false assumption. You don't have to bow down before a golden ephod to be caught in idolatry. An idol is anything that you give more devotion to than God. An idol is anything that captures your heart more than God. Anything that has more of your desire than God. Anything you give greater allegiance to than God. Anything that competes with God for that central place in your life. Anything that you give your worship to, because we're all worshippers. We're all worshipping something. Anything that you give your worship to other than God, it's an idol. You can make an idol out of just about anything. John Calvin, the great reformer, he said the human heart is an idol factory. We make idols constantly in our hearts. You know, honestly, for me, I, there, there have been times in my life where reading has become an idol. It's kind of bizarre, but I love reading. Nothing I'd rather do, other than spend time with my wife, of course, but nothing I'd rather do on an afternoon than curl up with a good book, cup of coffee, and read. I love reading. But there have been times I can see my desire for reading has, has outweighed my desire for God. And it's got more of a hold on my heart. The irony is, I love reading theology. So there's times when I have more of a desire to read books about God than I have desire for the God I'm reading about. That's how screwed up I am. Okay, beat that. So this is a problem. You can make an idol out of any. You can make an idol out of the newspaper if it's got a real hold on your heart. That daily reading of the newspaper. You can make an idol out of something that you own. Your car your batch, your boat, your clothes. You can make an idol out of lifestyle and experience, your travel, your work, being one of the boys, being the party girl, whatever. They can all be forms of idolatry. You can make an idol out of a person because idols aren't necessarily bad things in and of themselves. You can make an idol out of your spouse. You can make an idol out of your boyfriend and girlfriend. If they take that central place in, in your life, if they become an object of worship and your desire for that is greater than your desire for God. I think the best way that you can detect whether something has become an idol, because it is hard to measure, but look at the resources, look at the personal resources that you're bringing to it. Look at the time you're spending on that thing. Look at the money you're spending. 
Look at the time you're spending thinking about it even when you're not doing it. Look at the amount of mental and emotional energy that's being consumed. Look at the focus that it has for you and honestly ask yourself, is this starting to compete with God? Is this getting into a central place in my life? Is this becoming an idol? We need to bring ourselves to a posture of openness where we allow God to search us, search our hearts, and identify where these things have become idols for us. And again, it doesn't necessarily mean cutting it off from your life, but it may mean redefining it, giving it a new place in your life and reprioritizing it so that it orbits around Jesus rather than Jesus orbiting around this thing. That's an honest conversation that you need to have with God. Sometimes the only way you're going to find this stuff out is by asking someone else. Because we have such massive spiritual blind spots in our lives. There is a lot of stuff right now that is not healthy in your life that you don't see. That's just the reality. The only way you're going to see it is if somebody else points it out to you. So maybe you need to be brave enough to ask somebody you trust another follower of Jesus, whom you've got a good relationship with, ask them, is there something in my life that you see which is maybe bordering on idolatry? Something you see which is maybe a subtle form of pride. Something you see which is a personal agenda that's starting to get a hold on my life. And then just be big enough to take it and listen to it and do something about it. There's a verse in Proverbs chapter 4 which I think sums up the lesson we can draw from Gideon's life. It says, above all else, guard your heart. Because everything you do flows from it. That was Gideon's problem, ultimately, wasn't it? He didn't guard his heart. Started so well, and he couldn't finish well. These things got into his heart. They corrupted his faith, whether he realized it or not. They led him a long, long way from God. I went and visited this last week again with Murray Dixon. And man, it's such a gift at the moment to be spending time with that guy. And I, I just had in my mind... This message that I was working on about Gideon's latter life and then visiting Murray. And you just see such a contrast with Murray. I mean, his faith's never been stronger. Murray. You know, I mean, he is just, he's in this space at the moment where people are coming and talking to him and he's, he wants to pray for them. He wants to be a blessing to them. People are coming, they're talking to Murray, they're being confronted by their own mortality. They're opening up about things in their own life to him. He's becoming like a couch counselor in his own living room and he's praying for people. I heard of a guy the other day that Murray was calling still maybe calling every week just to check up on how he's doing. Even when he's going through this kind of journey himself, his faith is so strong. He's fought the good fight. He's finishing the race really well. And he's kept the faith. And isn't that what we want to be said about us when we finish? What's that trajectory, that spiritual trajectory in your life? Are you going to finish well? Where's it heading at the moment? Are you, are you just seeing in your life maybe just a, a, a season of plateau? You're just going nowhere spiritually. Not up, not down. Just leveled out, stalled spiritually. Not growing, just treading water. Maybe you're starting to see the signs of spiritual decline. And God's just prompting your heart even with some of the stuff this morning and saying there's seeds of this in your life and it's going to get a hold. It's going to put you on the downhill if you're not careful. Maybe you're fully into that downhill run and you know it, you realize it, you see it. You're not quite sure how to get Back to where you need to be. Whatever you've done to this point, wherever you've been to this point, it's not as important as what you do from here. Because the story of Judges is the story of a God who always takes his people back. Or it doesn't matter how far you've drifted. doesn't matter how many times you've drifted. doesn't matter how subtly it's happened. God is going to take you back. When his people cry out to him, God 
visits them with his grace and his mercy every time, every time. All he's looking for you to do is turn your heart back towards him. Name honestly the things that have got a hold in your heart. Just fall back down at the foot of the cross and renew your heart and he will forgive you and he will cleanse you and he will draw near again to you and he will strengthen you to guard your heart against those things that cause spiritual decline. So like the words of that old hymn say, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Let's pray. Father, we are so prone to wander away from you. We do feel it in our hearts. I know I am, God. So prone to wander from you. You're so good to us. You're so faithful to us, but we are just so prone to wander off on our own stupid paths. God, our ego gets in the way. Our agenda gets in the way. Our idols get in the way. Father, I pray right now you just bring to our mind anything that is causing our hearts to drift from you. Anything that's causing us to decline spiritually in our lives. Anything at all, God. We just open ourselves to it. We ask you to search us. Father, if it's something that we're just putting too much effort into, if it's something that's become an idol, if it's our ego, whatever it is, God, just bring it to our minds. Just settle it on our conscience now. Father, we name those things to you as they come into our heads. We name them honestly to you and we confess them to you, Father. We confess these things. We confess to you our idols. We confess to you our pride. We confess to you our personal agendas that are driving us. We confess to you whatever it is you're bringing to our minds right now. Father, we confess it. And I thank you, God, that as soon as we confess it, your grace just floods in. Your mercy just surrounds us again. You don't leave us condemned. You don't leave us in guilt and shame. You forgive us. And you set us back on our feet to move forward in your strength and your power. So give us now the courage, Lord, to make the decisions we need to make about these things, to put them back in their proper place in our lives, to readjust our priorities, to reinvest ourselves in relationship with you, to return to you with all of our heart. And we ask, Lord, that you would purify our hearts, create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within us. We pray for the sake of your son, Jesus. Amen. We'll share in communion now, and I just encourage you to stay in that open posture as we center ourselves on the death of Jesus and the cross and thank him for his wonderful grace in our lives. Just allow God to run a spiritual inventory in your life. Bring to your mind anything that needs to be dealt with. Name it before him and start a conversation about some steps that you can take with him to guard your heart. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.